Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. It's New Books and Psychoanalysis. This is Richard Briette. I'll be your host for this episode. And today we're talking to Eli Zaretsky, who's the author of Political Freud, A History. Dr. Zaretsky is a professor of history at the New School, writes and teaches about 20th century cultural history, the theory and history of capitalism, especially its social and cultural dimensions, and the history of the family. He is also the author of Why America Needs a Left, Secrets of the Soul, A Social and Cultural History of Psychoanalysis, and Capitalism, The Family and Personal Life. Eli, welcome to the program. Thank you, Richard. Um, you know, I I want to start, a, a question occurred to me, I was doing some, some reading about you, and I saw a recent interview where you mentioned something about reading Freud in a medical library. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I don't know if you remember that, but... Um, no, I don't. I, I remember the reading. Oh, okay. Um, can you... I, I was just really curious about that, because it sounds kind of, you know, like an important experience for you. Can you sort of talk about that? That's... Uh, actually, that's a very interesting um, question, because um, I was actually... I was just reading Lee Smolin, uh, The Trouble with Physics. I, I'm not recommending the book. Okay. But uh, I thought it was a very interesting... Uh, book because I could see uh, in reading Smolin that he had had the experience of reading Einstein at a at a young age and that it had marked his entire life mm. uh, and that whenever he was encountering new developments in physics and string theory and so forth he always went back to Einstein and not only Einstein knew Galileo and, and with the sense that he knew what a genuine theoretical development looked like and felt like and, and, and so forth. And I think reading Freud um, had that kind of impact on me. At least I thought I thought about that in, re- in reading Smolin. The uh, particular uh, was the San Francisco General uh, Medical Library where my daughter was born. And um, I had never read Freud. I, I was working for a socialist. Uh, magazine, and I was going to review uh, Juliet Mitchell's Psychoanalysis and Feminism, and in the course of trying to review it, I thought, well, I should read Freud, and I started reading it, and they had the complete works, and then I just sort of read the whole thing. It it had that kind of impact on me. Yeah, it's, you know, I heard that story or read it, and I thought, it felt like you... The, the the person that was in that library, I could sort of feel in this in this book that just came out in 2015, Columbia mm-hmm. University Press. Um, yeah. All right. Well, can you talk about what motivated you to write this book? Well, um, after you finish a book, uh, what motivated me to review um, Juliet Mitchell was after you finish a book, uh, there are questions left over. And I uh, had written on the history of family and the impact of capitalism on the family. This was in the early 70s. 
And I knew that there were questions left over. I knew that they were connected to psychoanalysis that uh, that, uh, led me to reading Freud and uh, trying to learn something about psychoanalysis. And similarly, after I finished um, The um, uh, Secrets of the Soul, which is an overall history of psychoanalysis, a kind of attempt to capture the phenomenon as a whole in terms of uh, between early 20th century and uh, the 1970s, uh, I knew that there were questions left over. And I knew that there was some, I always felt um, I I was part of groups of uh, historians of psychoanalysis and so forth. I always felt that there was something critical in, in, in critical in the philosophical sense of uh, against the grain um, in uh, in psychoanalysis, and I wanted to capture it. And uh, as a result of Secrets of the Soul, I got various invitations. They were rather contingent, and uh, I it led to this book. Okay, um, it it definitely reads like a, a kind of companion to Secrets of the Soul. And, um, yeah. I just speaking as a psychoanalytic candidate, I, I, uh, I'll put a plug in for Secrets of the Soul. It provides a history of psychoanalysis that I really wasn't able to get anywhere else in it. It did start to speak to questions I was developing about my experience as a candidate, about the kind of implicit politics that seemed to develop in analytic institute. So it was a really, really informative from that perspective. Thank you. Um, you know, I was also curious with the book um, along these lines, did you have an idea of who the uh, audience would be or an intended of audience? Of this, of this book? Yeah. Yeah, no, very much so because uh, I, I gained an audience uh, with secrets of the soul um, and, you know, I was invited to various conferences and to give talks and so forth. So I had a very strong sense. I won't mention names, mostly young people, but also candidates, people in analytic institutes. In other words, I have, I have a sense of a sort of base audience um, of uh, uh, people for whom Psychoanalysis has something critical, but not in the literal sense that can be assimilated to left-wing politics or radical politics or perhaps even feminist politics, qua-feminist politics, Mm -hmm. but that there is something uh, deep uh, behind those politics that psychoanalysis speaks to. And I know that psychoanalysis, as I've shown, can be put to conservative ends politically as well as uh, obviously authoritarian uh, aspects of psychoanalysis that I think are probably pretty well known. Uh, but uh, I, I, I always did feel that there was uh, something uh, that, that a lot of people had uh, uh, that sense of psychoanalysis. And that is, I've always conceived that to be my main audience uh, for this book, so that my work on psychoanalysis. Okay. Um, you know, I think that is a good segue into a passage from the book that you had in mind to read to the audience. And this is, you know, the staff at new books were talking about this idea that it it adds a level of, um, I don't know, closeness to the author. Um, So you were going to read from the beginning of the book, right? Uh, Yes. Yes. I was going to read the, uh, you, you asked me to choose a uh, uh, a passage or two. And I, uh, I was just going to read the opening paragraph. Okay, let's do it. 
Okay. In 1968, at a convention of Students for Democratic Society, I spied a pamphlet by Herbert von Kuse on the book table, The Obsolescence of the Freudian Conception of Man, that ideas such as the unconscious and repression could become obsolete shocked me. I remember this today because it encapsulates the two meanings of political Freud. First, for a new leftist like myself, Marcuse epitomized the ideas, the idea that it was impossible to understand politics without insight into the irrational forces that shaped history, and that Freudian thought was incomparably the deepest path we had to such insight. Second, the pamphlet's title suggested that Freud's thought was itself historical, depending on the social and cultural conditions that gave rise to it, and that could also render it obsolete. In the next few years, I watched as Freudian thought did become, in quotes, obsolete, at least in part, and for reasons having nothing to do with its intellectual merits. Its plausibility was undermined through the dynamics of consumer capitalism, the commercial ambition of pharmaceuticals and insurance companies, the openness of the public sphere to any sensational claim, no matter how ill-founded, the politics of gender and sexuality, and the changing meanings of private life. Okay. Well, that, you know, it, it certainly sets the scope of the, the five essays in your book. Um, and maybe we should talk about that a little bit. Um, there's um, a, the way I saw it, it the, the book is, is almost um, it's kind of bookended with, uh, discussion about the um, the economy and the the, hmm. the relationship between uh-huh. capitalism and I mean I was uh, chapter five which is about the the new left and feminism. Mm-hmm. There's also a lot of talk about neoliberalism in there, which I thought you know made sense to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and mm-hmm. and then um, you know there's a chapter on um, how African American intellectuals used Freud. There's a chapter on um, the Holocaust and Freud's reading of Moses and monotheism chapter on war and the death instinct. Um, And it struck me that those were really the chapters two, three, and four were um, discussions of how how, uh, liberating and um, it it shows the potential of the political Freud for exploring how politics work internally at, at, mm-hmm. the, at the individual psyche. Um, mm-hmm. And, but you, there is this kind of bookending uh, of how, this dynamic and development of psychoanalysis vis-a-vis the economy. So I thought maybe, could you talk a little bit? Well, first of all, so that's, uh, I think I'm kind of setting the table here a little bit for, mm-hmm. you know, the book, but maybe we should start with talking about the idea of political Freud. And and you say that there are, there are two Freuds. You say that there are two Freuds, right? Um, well, no, I said, um, excuse me. Um, I said the new left came up with the idea that there were two Freuds. One was a conservative medical doctor and the other was a revolutionary. That's not, that's not my view. Okay. (laughs) Okay. Well, let me say that Um, that there are sort of, 
way that's part of the my reading of the 1960s. I was trying to explain how central Freudianism was to the 1960s. You can't begin to understand the New Left and the women's movement in the 70s uh, and the culture of the 50s without understanding the role that psychoanalysis played at the mm-hmm. center. I think. Well, but, I'm getting uh, ahead. Th- th- this is. I, I, yeah, go on. I'm getting ahead of myself. I don't really then. have. This. Yeah. Um, okay. maybe I, I had an idea that there were two political Freuds, but why don't you just try to, but without me trying to speak for you, what, talk a little bit about the idea of the, poli- of political Freud and what that means. Well, I, 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 uh, I, I there are two political Freuds, mm. uh, and I, I, it, I say it in that, um, opening paragraph. Mm. So, uh, the first way of understanding the concept of political Freud is simply just what you what you said, Richard, namely the ways in which in the 20th century oppressed peoples and social movements drew on psychoanalysis to understand the psychic causes and the psychic costs of their oppression. Uh, you know, I think one of the most striking uh, chapters, one chapter that I'm really proud of is the one on African-Americans. Uh, because, you know, psychoanalysis is by no means at the center of radical um, African-American intellectual history. And yet when you start to think about the people who are engaged with it, Richard Wright, Ralph Ellison, France, Fanon, even Du Bois, um, and the ways in which that they were engaged because of the psychological effort that African-Americans had to make to conquer and master the experience uh, that they had had um, uh, under slavery and under Jim Crow that they continue to have, uh, and that they drew, drew on psychoanalysis for that. So I, I, I think one political Freud is a kind of political Freud, uh, and Juliet Mitchell was trying to do that for women and, and so forth, um, and, and uh, the political Freud that people drew on uh, Jews, uh, in the case of fascism and so forth, to try to illuminate um, uh, social movements. It was very obvious that the dominant uh, left-wing movements of the time did not have an understanding of that, of what what was, um, you know, internal to oppression. So that was one political Freud. And I think one thing that I try to show in the book is just, how important Freudian thought was to social movements like, um, you know, movements concerned with race, movements concerned with uh, sexism, anti-authoritarianism, which is that's the central problem of the new left is authoritarianism. Mm-hmm. And that chapter begins by, I actually, that chapter on, on, on the 60s started because I was invited to a conference on, on psychoanalysis and authoritarianism, and all the people at the conference were writing about Nazi Germany and so forth, and I wrote about America in the, in the 1960s. Mm. So these are all social movements that are drawing on Freudianism to uh, advance their understanding of oppression and, and uh, group organization leadership uh, the ways in which victims, to use Camus' terms, the ways in which victims turn into executioners and so forth. That, that's one Freud. And then the second meaning that uh, I have of uh, political Freud is, uh, you know, it's not a, I mean, Freud is not a fixed, um, you know, uh, body of thought that uh, is, is, is finished. I personally am, am always in my thinking, I'm, as the story I told about Einstein, 
I'm a conservative person. I like to rely on achievements that have been made um, in the past. But I'm also like to think of myself as a as a radical and as a very forward looking person. So, um, you know, uh, the second meaning of political Freud is simply that psychoanalysis is something that was historically and socially and politically situated, that it uh, reflected and was shaped by the po- politics of it, uh, of its time, that it has a history, uh, and um, that it's, it's not something fixed. Um, all right, I, I want. I definitely want to come back, um, probably uh, toward the end of our interview, to the the final chapters and the question of, you know, the the, the psychic causes and costs of um, politics, I guess, and and what's happening in the world politically um, and economically, and sort of mm-hmm. looking at the future. But before we get there, why don't we start with this nexus of where capitalism was, um, you know, at the turn of the century and when, um, you know, psychoanalysis comes on the scene and you talk about, so I'm taking us back to chapter one. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. You talk about how capitalism was transitioning from uh, Calvinism or what you call a worldly worldly asceticism to mm-hmm. the transitioning to mass production and mass consumption. Um, mm-hmm. And you talk about how psychoanalysis was in the mix with this transition. And right. it, it's, it, it led. So I want to hear about that, but also as you're talking about it for me throughout the book, I was never really sure whether the economy, the structure of the economy um, was affecting psychoanalytic theory or vice versa or mm-hmm. how it was both. Mm-hmm. So, okay. Yeah. Well, I think that's, thank you for uh, the question and, you know, for your thoughtfulness. Um, I think that um, to understand my book uh, and my thinking more, more generally, um, I don't think of capitalism as an economic system. Mm-hmm. Uh it's a social system. It has a culture and psychology and politics wrapped up with it and so forth. And of course, it does have a market economy. It isn't really even a market economy uh, anymore. Uh, but it does have, you know, obviously private property and, and, and so forth. So there are ways, there are things about it that you could understand economically. But I don't think you really scratch the surface. Uh, one scratches the surface of capitalism to think of it just in economic terms. Okay. Uh, it's a, it's the deep structure of modern history, of modern life. It's some, it's something, you know, it's the big story about the modern world is how it has been transformed, uh, by capitalism. And in the first chapter, um, I'm concerned, I, I, I'm trying to just situate, um, Freudianism, uh, historically. And th- this is something that you know, really must be done because Freud, for 50 years of 20th century history, he's one of the most important thinkers in everybody's mind. Everyone is talking about it. Everyone is using the ideas and so forth. And that's something that has to be explained. Um, it's not, you know, you can't just write it off or 
you know, call it a trick or whatever, you know, uh, it's something that requires an historical explanation. Uh, and um, I, I, I really draw on the way in which Max Weber, uh, the sociologist, approaches the question of capitalism. What he, he says is the same thing I just said. It's not just an economic system. There's a system of motivation. There's a system of meanings behind it. And his system of motivation is Calvinism or Puritanism or, you know, the Protestant ethic. And what that does, what that made, why that was so important starting in the 1600s and 1700s um, was um, because it made people work harder. It made them listen to authority. It made them save and accumulate, which was fundamental to that uh, period of um uh, of uh, of capitalism, and it's not that Calvinism. Uh, of course, the whole reason that Calvinism had this power over people was not because it said something about capitalism, but rather because it said something to them about their eternal life, how they would be saved, what the nature of their soul was. Mm. And my uh, approach to understanding why how psychoanalysis came in, and especially in the United States why it was so powerful. I mean, without the spread of the of American mass culture and so forth, and film and so forth in the 20th century, psychoanalysis would have been a much more minor, you know, East European uh, body of thought. It was America that really spread it throughout the world uh, to, to a great extent. We, certainly when we get down to the 40s, 50s. Um, and uh, so my, uh, part of my explanation is that psychoanalysis uh, entered into the 20th century history of capitalism, which meant a different kind of capitalism involving freedom from the Protestant ethic. You didn't have to sp save. You had to spend, as we see. Um, and um, it involved lifting of restrictions, uh, release from, the, from uh, Protestantism, a sexual revolution in the 1920s, the flapper, and, which is when mass consumption comes in, and when Freudianism comes in. It doesn't really come in in 1909 mm -hmm. when Freud first visited the United States in Clark University. And the reason is because they were trying to use Freud in 1909 in the same way to, to kind of keep the Protestant ethic alive. They, that, was, that was the idea behind the people who invited him to Clark University. But it explodes in the 1920s because of mass consumption. But it's not that psychoanalysis is just an ideology or a reflection of mass consumption or just something that was caused by capitalism any more than, than Calvinism was. These are enormous revolutions in the history of the thinking about the human soul. It was precisely because psychoanalysis stood for something that transcended capitalism, that went beyond capitalism, that it could be seized upon as a source of meaning and combined with changes that were taking place in the economy, especially the transformation of the family, the, the sexualization of the family, the rise of personal life, the rise of a new sense of personal individuality on the part of people um, that was coming out of the uh, changes in the society. Are you familiar with <clears throat> um, the British filmmaker Adam Curtis? He did a, a documentary called Century of the Self. 
You know, um, Tia, I don't, I'm, I'm familiar with it in the sense that everyone has to, uh, told me. <laughs> everyone tells me. Well, yeah. um, and I might even, I'm pretty sure I have a copy, but I don't remember if I've ever seen it. I'm well, sorry, but the I, reason I, I sort of have the idea. The reason I mention yeah. it is he, he yeah. spends a lot of time talking about Edward Bernays, who is right. Freud's nephew, who becomes, right. you know, the, the sort of right. father of the advertising industry public, in the United States right. and public relations. Exactly. Right. So, for example, his first triumph was figuring out how to encourage women to smoke. Right. And right. to to associate. Torches of freedom. Right. Exactly. Yes, that's right. Right. Okay. Um, so, but, so there's this critical edge to psychoanalysis or possibly even a radical edge, which by the 20s is picked up by, by oppressed peoples. Is that part of the picture? Well, no, let's separate okay. um, its role in capitalism and the being picked up uh, by the oppressed peoples. But okay. its, role in, its role in capitalism is um, that if you look at the 1920s uh, in America, it's, there's just a huge sigh of relief. All the whole hypocritical, genteel, uh, world of ninth of nineteenth century. Keep your nose to the grindstone. Work hard. Uh, li- listen to your elders. Be assigned to the right sex role. All of a sudden, that just seems like a gigantic farce to the young people of the nineteen twenties, and they they feel very liberated. And so Freudianism enters into that uh, as a symbol of li- liberation and as a symbol of release. But that's not Freud. That's not what Freud believes. And in addition, people, you know, smaller groups, but basically intellectuals, because Freud is really at the center of 20th century American intellectuals identity between the 20s and the 70s. Um, the intellectuals of the time, some of them say, no, that, that, that's not Freud. It's really the idea of sublimation uh, is, uh, is what Freud stands for. I, I've just written something uh, about this, and I say, you know, where Freud says in 1923, I guess, where ego was, where, excuse me, where id was, there shall be ego, you can translate that as where control, where, um, where, yeah, where it was, there shall be ego. You could translate it as where release was, there shall be sublimation. Mm. And so people of the intellectual, some a smaller group of uh, intellectuals in the 20s say, no, that Freud is not just celebrating the birth of consumer society and drinking all night and sleeping with whom you want, and so forth, which a lot of people read Freud in the 20s, like Margaret Mead, read Freud that way, and they said, this is great, you know, cultural diversity, and so forth. No, Freud uh, is a critic of that. He's, you know, he's critical of that. He's critical of the idea of just release, um, and uh, so forth. And among the people who see another Freud, there are some who then take it in the direction of trying to understand things like race. For example, uh, in, in the Harlem Renaissance, uh, where they are looking for some people like uh, Zora Neale Hurston and, and John Toomer are looking for a racial unconscious, the way in which the unconscious has been shaped by the experience of slavery. And that's, that's really deepening the critique of racism. 
giving it a psychical depth, and that's a whole different way of understanding uh, Freud. So there are many different ways of, of, of understanding Freud, but the first way in the early part of the 20th century was liberation from the Protestant ethic, liberation from the old sex roles, so forth. Okay. Um, I definitely... Sexual freedom. I definitely... Um, I, I know that we're going to get to, or I'm going to get to asking you about the maturity ethic. Um, mm-hmm. But I, are we ready to get there? I don't want to skip over any important material. Um, I mean, don't, just follow your... <laughs> okay, follow my, my motivation. <laughs> well, um, right. Um, well, <laughs> so, um, you, you know... And what made me think of that was your really interesting um, formulation of, um, you know, where release was, there shall be sublimation. Um, And Mm -hmm. I think in a way that question or the way that you frame that, that statement pivots sort of from side to side along the whole length of your book. Um, So there's, there's this idea that it's not just release. There's something else. Right. Absolutely. But... Um, this, this question of what you call the maturity ethic comes into play. Right. And that uh, I suppose is on the side of the normalizing force of psychoanalysis. I have a quote here, page 29, you say from its inception, psychoanalysis was divided between two impulses, one pushed mm-hmm. toward absorption into mainstream institutions, integral to 20th century capitalism the social control control institutions, the other pulled toward sectarianism and the wish to guard a Freud centered mosaic core. Um, what was that? It pushed toward what? Uh, not the mosaic core. Was the uh, word Freud? Freud centered. Okay, it doesn't matter anyway. Go on. Okay. Uh-huh. Um, so, so there are already these impulses toward a kind of normalization. That, that psychoanalysis and I suppose you would say a conservative political um, function. Um, and is that what the maturity yeah. ethic is? Um, yes. Um, and no, okay. uh, the, the uh, psychoanalysis, it was, a, could be adapted uh, in many different ways. And the practitioners of psychoanalysis used it in, in many different ways. So uh, in terms of the conservative uses of psychoanalysis, the, what I mean by absorption, I probably in that sentence um, haven't captured this properly. Uh, but uh, to me, the whole celebration of liberation and release in the 1920s, uh, like the whole celebration of liberation and release in the New Left or in the women's movement or the gay movement, um, these are, are problematic moments. Uh, so I don't consider these great moments of liberation. I don't think they should be taken at face value. I think they have to be examined. I do stand for sublimation rather than um, release. Uh, so I would not say at certain moments, you know, Freudianism has just liberating, and other times it, it was used in a normalizing way. And what, what happened in terms of um, the evolution of psychoanalysis, it was, it was 
plasmic. It, it was it could be molded and was molded um, historically in different ways. Um, and what happened uh, psychoanalysis in the 1940s and 50s with the maturity ethic is that um, the you, you had really almost the tragic story of the psychoanalysts themselves because they were so shaped, the European psychoanalysts, by, as everyone was, by the Holocaust. Uh, they were desperate uh, to be accepted, to be, you know, brought into the American mainstream, which, uh, which, which, is, which is essentially conservative. Just as a, um, a, for the audience, um, I think what we're talking about is the effect of World War II, and I yeah. think, as you describe it, the destruction of psychoanalysis in Europe. Um, in Europe, and, and its rescue in the United States. Right. So we're talking about the, yeah. the analysts who are, uh, you know, immigrating to the United States. Okay. Yeah. Um, and um, they develop a version of ego psychology uh, that, 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 that was that was basically very conservative um, and uh, conservative above all in sex roles. Uh, and that was actually not, if you look back to the way Freudianism was, uh, was greeted in the 1920s by people like Ruth Benedict or Margaret Mead, you know, they welcomed that as liberation in terms of sex role. So it, 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 and, and, you know, it could be seen, um, it could be seen either way. Uh, but, um, I, I think what, uh, and, and the Freudianism of the 1940s and 50s was shaped uh, by the politics of the Cold War. And the politics of the Cold War in the United States was extremely irrational. I, I do think that people can see that we live in a society with very, very deep sources of irrationality at present. I don't see how people could miss that. Mm -hmm. But a lot of that started in the 40s and 50s with the with the anti-communism and McCarthyism. And so psychoanalysis was adapted to that, and it became a sort of, like, don't get too excited, don't believe in radical politics, be a good wife, uh, you know, homosexuality is like con is bad, it's like communism, and so forth. Um, but um, I, I, I do think that uh, the idea of the ego, as it developed in in psychoanalysis, uh, was a great idea because um, it uh, psychoanalysis, as it evolved, focused more and more on the self and representation of the self and self object relations and so forth. It's very important, but it's not the whole person. Um, and the idea of an ego that could objectively or attempt to be objective about the self and look at the self, that's what sublimation is. It's a rising above the self. And you get into this terminology in great detail, um, the, the, the shift from the idea of the ego to the self, even the terminology. Right. Mm -hmm. um, all right. So I suppose... In terms of history, we are on the cusp of the 60s, and there is this transition to, to yet another uh, sort of shift in the entire, um, as you say, uh, how capitalism is working and how it affects at a deep way individuals and the social space. 
Um, right. So at the same time, by the end of World War II, psychoanalysis, would you say that psychoanalysis as a discourse of understanding oppression was had already faded? Was there a period where... No. Okay. So, no, because... Yeah, go on. Well, during, let's say, the Cold War period, where, let's say, from 1950 to 1960, where, who, is it Norman O'Brown, or where, where are we seeing this? Yeah. Okay. Herbert Marcuse and uh, Norman O'Brown, mm-hmm. um, Eric Erickson, um, Paul Goodman. Uh, um, no, I mean, this effort to um, bring out the critical side of Freud was central for the new left and it was central for the women's movement. Now, what happened with the women's movement uh, with Juliet Mitchell's book was an effort to say that psychoanalysis could be read as a theory of sexism and could be adapted to feminist ends. Uh, and that was basically rejected uh, by, uh, by the women's movement. Uh, for reasons and basically through a history that I really tried to understand at the end of the book because I, I think it's extremely important to to the history of the women's movement, to the history of the United States, uh, and certainly to the history of um, of, uh, uh, of psychoanalysis. But uh, throughout all of that period, the early gay movement and so forth, people were still trying to use political Freud in the first sense that I use it, namely to understand sexism, to understand homophobia. Um, a little later, you know, well, I mean, never really gave up on in terms of race and to understand um, what was oppressive about capitalism uh, as in, um, you know, as in uh, Harvard Marcuse. And in the, and, and, and that desire has never gone away. Mm-hmm. That effort to find that has been suppressed and forgotten, but it, it really has not. And I think one proof of that that I can give is that in my chapter on war and psychoanalysis, I try to understand something obviously deeply irrational, which is the American reaction to 2001, uh, to, to, the, uh, to September 11th, to the bombing of the World Trade Centers. Obviously, the United States behaved and really continues to behave in a way that is quite destructive to its own interests uh, in the world, just starting with uh, the war in Iraq, probably the most disastrous single decision in American history. I think much more costly, not costly in terms of lives, but costly in terms of geopolitical position and so forth than Vietnam. Um, And um, the best discussion of that that I could understand uh, that I could find was by Judith Butler, and it's not exactly psychoanalytic, and she certainly would not be considered psychoanalytic, but when you look at what she's saying in the context of how Freud analyzed World War One and Melanie Klein and others analyzed World War Two, you realize how much of her analysis in precarious life of the way that the United States responded to 9-11, the irrational, the wounded narcissism and so forth, it comes out of the same political Freudian tradition. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is chapter four, the ego at war. Okay, that, yeah. From the death instinct to precarious life. And that's the title of Judith Butler's book. Um, yeah. Now you're, 
All right, so we're 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 talking about the new left, the the development of um, the gay rights movement and and you right. know seventies the feminism, um, and it seems to me that inherent in these movements is you know the, the sort of predominant um, rejection of Freud. Yes. And it, in, involved in that rejection is also a not only a critique, but I think an effort to kind of destroy the notion of authority and uh, certainly patriarchy or the, or the father and the, the patriarch. But right. this issue of authority seems to really come into play in a way, starting with the, the with these identity based movements. And I don't think that that. The, the problem is still among with us. Um, in other words, this Definitely. conundrum about what to yeah. do about identity and authority. Um, yeah. So can you kind of fill that, that picture in a little bit? Um, how authority uh, and the, the, the critique or effort to destroy it plays out over the last couple of decades. That's not the easiest question in the world, but okay. No, it's a, it's a very, very difficult question, right. um, and it isn't just um, you know the I, the I, the identity movements. I mean, uh, it just runs through the whole twentieth uh, century, and and this is, I think, really why Freudianism was so powerful in the twentieth century, is that you have these new societies with new masses of people, and you have governments and leaders, charismatic leaders, and movements like communism and Nazis. But that are really trying to organize ma- new masses of people as they come into the historical stage. There's such a period of uprooting that characterizes the, um, you know, the 20th century. Now, um, you know, uh, I uh, am wrestling throughout my book with, the, as as that first paragraph shows, with the rejection of political Freud in the 1970s, basically by the women's movement and the gay movement. Uh, and it's, it's, it's based on a lot of um, the anti-authoritarianism of uh, the new left. And certainly, I understand anti-authoritarianism, and I cannot... I, I even tell a story of how repulsive the first time I really... I come from a kind of, not exactly, you know, sexist environment of immigrant Jews and so forth, when I really just really came upon sexism, which was the first time I met the, the world of psychoanalysts. Right. Uh, you know, it's, it, it is repulsive to me. But, um, you know, the, uh, the loss of that tradition, of the political Freudian tradition, to me, that does seem like a tragic loss. And I don't think We've been able to replace it. We, you know, it's it, it, we don't have the concepts to really understand how, how authority works, ways that we need it, ways that we uh, don't need it, and so forth. Uh, and I, I mean, I think it's uh, it's a huge problem. Look what look what happened with Occupy Wall Street. It was one of the greatest social movements, uh, you know, of our time. It set the agenda. It created the whole thing about inequality. But they were so focused on the fact that they weren't going to have leaders that they just disappeared. 
Um, and, and you know, that um, I was going to ask you about that. I know that um, Miko yeah. Miko White, one of the um, people from Adbusters, that I guess is attributed with starting the Occupy or or sparking it. Let's say he's he's got a book coming out where he talks about the major mistake they made was or or the the mistake protests make is they don't offer a, a kind of structure or a mm-hmm. kind of uh, a, a, an effort to put forth something different. Right. Um, yeah, I mean, yeah, go on. no, please. No, I, no, I mean, I don't have, I don't have any answer to it. I, I think it's a little bit more than a mistake. I think, uh, I don't mean it's worse than a mistake. I mean, it's, it's a real historical change. It really starts in the sixties and seventies. And I mean, and I, and I think that um, I can, I really, you know, I love history. I mean, I teach history. I, I, I don't really teach that much uh, about psychoanalysis. But I just didn't think that the whole history of psychoanalysis is, has been such a bellwether to fundamental, you know, basically world historical changes. And I think that there was a world historical change in the 70s having to do with anti-authoritarianism and so forth. We're still living in the aftermath of it. And I, 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 I'm just trying, uh, trying to get a, a little bit of a handle on it uh, by, by discussing the role that psychoanalysis played in those struggles of that time. But I, I don't believe, I, I can't say, well, we should have structure, we should have leadership. Yes, I do believe that. But, um, you know, uh, I think these are very difficult uh, questions. Well, um, you know, I, I don't want to, um, we have a few minutes left, but I realized that there was one particular kind of way that you had of analyzing the overall Freudian project, um, which I, which, which brought so much clarity for me in terms of my understanding of psychoanalysis. I just want to briefly read a bit. Um, it's from page 190 and you talk about how there are actually three projects that are mm-hmm. connected in the psychoanalytic project. And that is mm-hmm. the therapeutic, the hermeneutic and the ethical. And mm-hmm. you say the striking fact about these three projects is that they were connected at all operating right. on different terrains, pursuing different aims and facing different obstacles. This labyrinth of diverging impulses nonetheless cohered. What held them right. together was the innovative Freudian conception of the human mind, which reflected the historically new phenomena of personal life an intrapsychic life that could not be reduced to one's social relations, but in which one's early family retained an unwanted power. Um, That's wanted with an O. Um, Yeah. So uh, the idea that the therapeutic, the hermeneutic, and how would you define hermeneutic here? It's a sort of sociological. Well, an analysis of culture. I mean, culture, Mm -hmm. you know, is one of the great discoveries of the 20th century is the idea of culture. And the idea of culture, actually, it does go back to the 20s, uh, develops with the uh, Freudian idea of a self, an unconscious self, and a, a culture that has an unconscious. And then you can read culture symptomatically like you can read a person and so forth. In its early, in the early genesis of the concept of uh, cultures, so that's what I meant by hermeneutics. So it's it's really helping Cultural. me to to okay. It's, so it's helping me to think about these three projects: therapeutic, hermeneutic, yeah. and ethical, as yeah. one um, psychoanalytic right. 
project. But what you do in the book then is sort of analyze how the three split apart. um, At the end, yeah. At the end. And, you know, we see the therapeutic is now um, pharmaceuticals and cognitive behavioral therapy. Um, The hermeneutic, I, I would say, is in the realm of academia now. Yeah, cultural studies, yeah. Mm-hmm. And the ethical is the big question mark. The big question mark. The, yeah. When I when I say the ethical, what you what you talk about is the kind of personal ethical project of right. self reflection. Right. Right. And so yeah. I guess my question um is where do you think the ethical is right now? What's happened to it currently? Well, the the ethical never goes away. Mm-hmm. Um, the ethical is certainly uh, the, the the ethical imperative uh, to live a good life and so forth. Um, you know, and I mean ethical. You know, not not moral, but um, which is sort of the absolute commandments, but more like a daily way of living. I mean, that has that has not gone away, and that's very alive. And I mean, I think they have. Yeah, we have huge successes in our present society. Uh, I, I, I just think the changes in sex roles and the acceptance of homosexuality and so forth, mm-hmm. these are these are fantastic, and, and race, I mean, these are fantastic um, ethical and moral achievements. Um, I just, I think that in, that there was a particular way in which uh, the, the, the Freudian moment um, interrupted and spoke to um, the ethical imperative that really goes back to Augustine and Plato and Montaigne and so forth um, of self-knowledge. It spoke to it in a very particular way, uh, w- which was a certain kind of, uh, a certain particularity to the uh, self-knowledge that had to do really with an understanding that you know, of, of the, the, the particularity of the individual. I mean, you are a psychoanalyst, and you know that finding out a person is not a matter of certain generalizations that you can apply, that each person has these very, very specific, concrete things, and they do have to do generally with their parents and with their early childhood. So it was a particular entry into uh, an ethical uh, discourse, and in that period, it was connected to culture, was connected to the understanding of culture, was connected to politics in a very broad way, uh, in terms of education, family, um, uh, understanding leadership, things like that. Uh, and um, I, I, I would never say that um, we live in times that are, in any sense, uh, less ethical. Um, I, don't, I, I don't believe that. But I'm not sure what the common language that we have at present, the common concepts to talk about our ethical life are that have replaced the Freudian ones, concepts that do connect up uh, with, uh, with culture and, and, and politics. That's the key, I think. Um, how do concepts of the ethical and let's say um, self-awareness not, not become caught up in the the neoliberal um, politic of being productive. 
uh, in, in the neo in, in the neoliberal sense, right. you know, absolutely, because neoliberalism is is an ethical project. Uh, it's the project of empowering yourself. It's the project of taking care of yourself, doing what, uh, and so forth. It does present an ethical project, and I think it's a very problematic ethical project. Uh, I don't think that it makes for a good society, and it obviously, you know, we could just see all the, the, the you know, things that are really, un, really unnecessary. I mean, the way the, the, the whole story, the Middle East, and so forth. I mean, that is just, it's just unbelievable. Uh, and um, yeah, I, I, I think that we have, I think we have a, a, a much better way of understanding the self and ethics and so forth uh, than uh, just a, a straight neoliberal one. Um, I get the feeling um, that you're looking to the theory of sublimation um, as, I don't know, a kind of signpost to what's next uh, as a, well, a sort of looking at a, a psychoanalysis as a kind of critical um, I, I, I mean, I think, as uh, you know, what's next? I, you know, I don't, I don't know what's next. But I do think that I do think that Freud, um, what he called it was geistekite in mm-hmm. Moses and monotheism, which you know you could call sublimation. Inwardness is a very good translation for mm-hmm. the German uh, geistekite and so forth. So the real the, the real issue in Moses and monotheism, which is my middle chapter and really is in a sense the pivot of the book, is how does humanity progress and how do we preserve moments of progress? This to me is the question about psychoanalysis. How can we lose? a discovery that was that monumental. Can we really, could you forget Newton? Mm. I am not, I, you know, I'm not trying to say that psychoanalysis is physics, but, you know, and I'm not even going to get into the question of science, but, you know, can you really lose an advance that was so great? And I think that is a question. That's what sublimation is. That's what Geistekite means. Um, it, it's, uh, you know, uh, uh, something different than either social control or, uh, release. Uh, so, uh, yeah, that is, that is my signpost. Well, um, I can't think of a more powerful way to end our discussion. Um, we're out of time. Um, Eli, it, has I feel like we have been talking for five minutes. Um, I would love to continue <laughs> the discussion. Thank you so much. Um, the book is Political Freud, A History, and the author, Eli Zaretsky, Columbia University Press 2015. Eli, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Richard. 